Lord Jesus Christ, your name is above all names. By in front of you, darkness shudders, evil spirits flee, hearts are broken and turned back to you. Lord, we ask in your name that you would open our hearts today, that we might hear your voice speaking to us. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Please be seated. It's really, really strange being in this room right now. Uh, yeah, Derek asked before the service how many have not worshiped with us in this room bef uh, before, and I think like half of you raised your hand. There have been many nights uh, over the last year and a half where I can't sleep, and part of the way that I put myself to sleep is by closing my, well, my eyes are closed because I'm laying in bed trying to fall asleep, but I imagine myself standing here and I move my eyes from this side of the congregation, and I start naming where people would sit. And I would work my way over to this side, and I would pray for you and fall asleep as I prayed. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's just, it's so great and delightful to see, uh, to see you all here in this space. Uh, I was crying as I was setting up chairs today. It's just, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, one thing that, that Jess said in our prayer gathering was just how steadfast the Lord has been to us this last year and a half. He has sustained us. He has gone before us in so many ways. Uh, when we were live streaming from a living room and everyone was dispersed and we were doing home liturgy, uh, when we were doing outdoor services and then the parkway and then outdoor and then back at the parkway, and now here. And as we speak, even these weeks, the Lord has gone before us and is preparing a building for us. Uh, it's just absolutely remarkable. He continues to surprise me, and I know so many of you. And so thank you for being here. Thank you for being with us. And ultimately, thank you, Lord Jesus, for sustaining us through this time. Uh, so we, we, we preach the Bible every week, so we're going we're gonna to go to the Bible as, as nostalgic as I would love to be for the rest of the morning. Uh, we're going to dive into the scriptures today and see what the Lord has for us. But first, a story. So uh, after graduating college, I used to uh, lived in Chicago, moved into Chicago, and worked at uh, the Apple Store on Michigan Avenue on the, on the Mag Mile there in, in downtown Chicago. And it was, it was a fun, exciting time for me. That's when Molly and I started dating. Um, she also worked on the Magnificent Mile. It was a great time. And, and the Apple Store there, I don't know if you've ever been there before, but that Apple Store, it kind of looks like a temple. Like it's this big sort of monolithic concrete sort of structure. You, there's a, instead of where you would expect a cross, there's a big Apple logo. Kind of like in here where you would expect a cross, we have the lovely sportsmanship code. How many of you have missed the sportsmanship code? If anyone's confused about why we're here, maybe you just want to, you know, look over those great moralistic teachings that are up there on the uh, sportsmanship code. Anyway, uh, so... Apple Store was this huge facility. Uh, the sales floor was about as big as this gymnasium, and there were four stories to this building. Up on the second floor, you had a genius bar, which is where they would do all the troubleshooting that just spanned the width of the building. And then hidden up on the fourth floor was this classroom for like private instructional times and workshops and things like that. It was very impressive. But more interesting to me than the facility were the very... Um, interesting uh, variety of people who would come in and be there uh, to uh, there at the store. 
I can actually see your faces. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I can hear you singing too. I'm just going to be, I'm kind of kind of going to be a space cadet today. Um, I always am uh, a bit, if you're a newcomer, this is like your first or second Sunday. This is, this is a very surreal moment. I might be interrupting myself more often. I'll, I'll try not to. So anyway, there's a wide variety of people who would come into the Apple store. There were low-income families who had been uh, who are so excited to launch one of their students off to college, and they had been saving up for a long time to buy a laptop for their kid. Or you would have um, big shot like graphic designers or developers come, and so they had no hesitation in buying the biggest and best computer or device that would be there because they needed it to accomplish their work and you know, change whatever world that they were a part of. But then also you had the locals there who, who lived there on the Gold Coast, and they didn't buy the best um, computers because it was dependent upon their jobs. They just bought it because that's, I guess that's what you do when, when uh, you have those kinds of resources. You, you get the best that money can buy and don't ask questions about it. But then there were also homeless of Chicago who would come into the Apple store and kind of pitch camp uh, at one of the computers and just be there uh, connecting with their friends uh, across the internet from opening to close. And they would be there uh, on the sales floor. So I was a salesperson, and uh, even though uh, Apple employees aren't commission-based, I wanted to be the best salesperson. I did, not, I did not like walking into the sales room, or I'm sorry, into the break room, and seeing other people's name higher than mine on the list. I wanted the glory from being at the top of that sales list. I didn't want to see Calvin at the top of the list. I didn't want to see Katie at the top of the list. I didn't want to see Monica at the top of the list. I didn't want to see Chris at the top of the list. These are real people, and I wanted to beat them at the top. I'm not making up names. <laughs> Some of them I still text about these sort of, sorts of things. So anyway, as a salesperson, the best salespeople would get to learn how to read the room. And you would walk onto the sales floor and you would be able to kind of pick up based off of the ways in which people were dressed, what sort of jobs they had, what sort of resources they had. And so a successful salesperson would read the room and act very strategically so that their performance, my performance, our performance uh, would be the best. Try to be. I'm being arrogant right now. But anyway, you get the idea. Well, today we're looking at the theme of partiality, partiality, and James just hammers us about partiality. He really lays into it. So the Apostle James, and we'll be continuing to go through these readings from James that the lectionary is, is giving us right now. James is the, scholars believe, he is the biological brother of Jesus our Lord. And James is concerned about the ways in which the community of Jesus' followers talk to one another the way in which followers of Jesus uh, serve the least among them. James is very concerned about how Jesus' followers love one another, the way in which we use our words. And so in a word, you could say that James is very concerned about a Christ-centered culture, a Christ-centered culture. And so today's focus is, in partic is particularly on partiality. So partiality is showing favoritism to someone based off of their external appearances. And while James is specifically talking about favoritism based off of riches in this passage, the principle can be applied to a bunch of different ways in which we uh, show favoritism to others. 
Someone can be partial towards others based off of riches, based off of race, based off of their social ranking, and on and on and on. And I think we can all agree that in our society, we all hate partiality. On paper, we all hate partiality. We post on social media, you know, about how much we hate social, or how we, hate, we do hate social media. I hate social media. But we post on social media about how much we hate partiality. Uh, we discuss it in our papers if you're in school. You know, politicians are talking about it all the time. On the surface, we hate it. But if we're being honest, partiality is the water that we all swim in, right? Our society is built on partiality. Our um, capitalistic society is built on partiality. And my guess is that many of your jobs, just like the one that I used to have, you wouldn't succeed if you didn't have a certain element of partiality at play. Our jobs probably encourage us to either explicitly or implicitly show partiality of some sort. Otherwise, you might be distracted or not accomplish the goals that your boss has for you. So if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to James chapter 2 uh, or to your bulletin where you'll see the full passage there. And in your bulletin, I, I forget if this is how the ESV breaks it up, but I've got it broken up into three different uh, paragraphs that are there, and we're going to be moving through those. We're going to talk about inconsistency, we're going to talk about the interrogation, and then we're going to talk about the instruction that we see in this passage. So James starts us off in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is only one of two instances in the New Testament where we see that title, the Lord of glory. And we'll be coming back to this verse. This is the cornerstone of this entire passage. This whole passage is erected up over this verse. It's built on this verse. But here, James unambiguously warns us against partiality. He reminds us that the church, our faith, is held to Jesus Christ Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is our King. We are His subjects under His rule. Furthermore, Jesus is the Lord of glory. And then he tells us a story. Some scholars argue that this story actually happened. Some don't. All agree this is not something that's beyond the realm of reality. Uh, N.T. Wright tells a story uh, just like this that happened in his church where he was the one who was moved to the front of a church and he was super embarrassed about it. He's like, hasn't anyone read James 2 right here? But in this story, two individuals enter a gathering for worship, just as we all did today. And first is a man with a gold ring and fine clothes. In the original language, it says it's a man with a gold finger, like a James Bond villain or something, you know. It's a man with a gold finger, and the idea is that his whole finger is covered with rings. In other words, he's, he's flaunting his wealth. He wants everyone around him to know that he has status, that he has rank in society. And you could also tell that by the fine clothing that he wears. His clothing, clothing would signal to you the riches that he has resources to. But then there's a second person who comes in, someone with shabby clothing, Shabby is not really a word that we use too often. It's, it's kind of silly. Um, I don't use it very often. But shabby, it's, it's not just that this man's clothes are out of style. Uh, these clothes are shabby in that they're dirty. Uh, the word, the original word kind of alludes to how dirty these words are, how soiled they are. They're kind of falling apart. And this man does not have the resources to buy nice clothing. And so then what does the church do? 
Well, sadly, the church quickly escorts the rich person and seats them down right where you're sitting, Karis, in the special seat of honor, right? <laughs> and then the poor person is quickly shown the back of it, you know. I'm, I'm sorry for those of you on the bleachers, but in, in this story today, that's, that's, that's where you got. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, they're all the ones who've been serving this morning, serving their hearts out. Uh, so some quick clarifications here before we dive even further into this. A couple of things that, that James is not saying in this passage. Now, James is not saying that we should ignore the rich or romanticize the poor. No, this is a passage about external appearances and quickly jumping to conclusions based off of those appearances. Also, this passage is not saying that we shouldn't exercise wise discernment. We should exercise wise discernment in our lives, and we could talk forever about ways in which we should be doing that. But finally, the Bible is clear that we should honor people who are deserving of honor. We should give up our seats for those who are elderly and in need of a seat if all the seats are full. You know, there, there are things that we should be doing as marks of honor, ways in which we honor the generations before us, our, our mothers and our fathers. So what this passage is saying, what James is saying, is that external factors such as riches, rank, race, those sorts of things are irrelevant when it comes to human dignity, human dignity. Verse 4, when you show partiality, then aren't you making distinctions among yourselves, becoming judges with evil thoughts, James says? So two things, making distinctions and becoming judges. So what James is telling us is that when we exercise partiality, we're dividing the people of God into the haves and the have-nots, the clean and the dirty, the elites and the untouchables, the valuable and the worthless. And friends, this is detestable in the eyes of God. It's antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it is also God who is the judge. God is the one who is the ruler over all. He is Lord and King, as our passage just said. It is Jesus Christ who sits upon the throne. Jesus looks into the heart of man, and there will be that day in which he separates the sheep from the goats. And so when we ourselves start making distinctions, we are placing ourselves, metaphorically speaking, onto the throne, room, or onto the throne of God, and we start exercising the sin of arrogance. Do you see the inconsistency that's here? Do you see what's going on? Jesus is the Lord of glory, the glorious one, the one in whom our faith, our trust, our hope, our loyalty is to him. But furthermore, it's Jesus. He's the one who has humbled himself he departed from that glorious place to come and dwell with us. He entered into the muck and the mire of human experience and walked among us. But more than that, he was handed over to the religious authorities. He was stripped, beaten, and hung on a cross. The cross is Jesus' throne. The cross is Jesus' glory. And so this great inconsistency that James is describing here is when we show partiality. It is when we are chasing after the glory of this world instead of the glory of God. It's when we look for the throne of riches rather than the throne of the cross. That is why this is such a big and significant deal for James. We want the glory of that leaderboard in the break room rather than the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So after um, pointing out this inconsistency, James now presses into an interrogation. There's four questions that come, just one right after another, after another, after another. In verse 5, he says, 
Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And by the way, isn't it not just, or isn't it the rich are the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme against the holy name by which you have been saved? Throughout human history, we've seen these verses materialize before us. We've seen just society after society, our own included, where it's the class of elites who are often the oppressors, oftentimes the oppressors of the church. They have the resources to bend the justice system to their own advantage. They are the ones who hire their own lawyers, sometimes even bribe judges, right? Time and time again, it's the under-resourced of society, especially the poor, who have to put up with it. So both our current president and our previous one, they've both used the Bible as a prop in, in various images that we could look at over the last couple of years. Both of them have misquoted scriptures, and maybe you can uh, assume positive intent in them. I personally find that quite patronizing at minimum and at most blasphemy against the holy name by which we've been saved. So isn't it funny that a book written 2,000 years ago still seems to be speaking to us today? James says the rich are the ones who are pour, pulling you into court. The, the rich are the ones who are blaspheming the holy name. And so essentially what the apostle is asking here rhetorically, the answer implied is yes. He says, why do you want to play that game? Why do you want to enter into that, he says? Well, this interrogation of questions is meant to jostle us awake. It's meant to startle us. It's meant to have us think about the rules that we're playing by, the game that we're playing by, and carry that to its natural conclusion. We are the people of God. Whose glory are we chasing? So this final section, the instruction that James gives us, it can seem a, a bit random perhaps, but here James the brother of Jesus reminds us of the Jesus teaching. Jesus, as he walked among us, he summarized to us the law, the way in which we were to treat one another, by quoting Leviticus. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then James calls this the royal law. That is the law of King Jesus himself. Which, that's another sermon, by the way, is tracing the the word kingdom throughout this passage. It's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the second paragraph, it's the poor who are heirs of the kingdom. And then here we see that the law is called the royal law. We'll, we'll do that next time this comes up in the lectionary. But Jesus begins his, when he began his ministry here on earth, he said the kingdom of God is here now. And the law of the kingdom is love. So, partiality, I think, is such a struggle for us human beings because it's, it's really easy for us to ignore. It's really easy because it's so beneficial to us. It works. That's why it's so easy for us to fall into, us, fall into it. James doesn't want us to miss, miss it. Showing partiality is a sin that breaks the entire law. And I hope what you've been hearing through this is that it gets to the root of the gospel and it gets to the root of the character of God himself. So the law is like a tire. It's like a tire. It's just a tiny little puncture in it, maybe even so small that your eye can't see it. But a tiny little puncture in it, something unnoticeable like that, is enough to make the whole thing go flat. And there are some people who are driving on that flat tire of social prestige rather than the full tire of God's law. That's what James is trying to convict us of today. So this week is, is a 
been a huge week, I think, for the life of our church, uh, symbolically speaking. Not only is it because we are here in this room, but also this week, the building that, that we purchased a month or so ago, it's been under renovations and it's, it's getting there. We're not ready to set a total date yet, but it's, it's getting close. But this week, a huge thing happened to the building. Uh, a sign was put out front that has our name on it. Yeah, it's like, whoa, like this is real now. So if you drive by it, you'll see Restoration Anglican on it. It's absolutely terrifying and exciting all at one. Um, like I, I was uh, enjoying a beverage with my neighbors last night, and they're like, hey, it looks like things are happening there. I'm like, yeah, I know, it's happening. Oh, what are we doing? Uh, it's very exciting. Yeah, so I wonder... For, for people who maybe see the sign, see that sign out front of the building, how many of them are going to wander into the building because of that? And I don't want to be naive. I know that putting a building in front of your sign is not sufficient evangelism. I get that. If it was, our entire nation would be <laughs> attending church right now. I get that. But it does tell people that there is activity that's happening here, that something's going on, that there's new life that's happening here. Uh, and, and when they see our cars parked out front, there, there's going to be some activity that's happening there. And I wonder how many people uh, from the neighborhoods are going to be wandering in to that building. I hope and pray that it's a wide spectrum of individuals, just like that Apple store, just like the early church, just like the workplaces where you are, the neighborhoods that you live in. I hope we have a wide variety of individuals who come and visit us I don't think it's a stretch of the. Uh, I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination, though, to think that we will be tempted to exercise partiality in that moment. Now we've had the pleasure of um, the way in which our church has mostly grown is probably word of mouth, you know. But when we're in a neighborhood like this, there's going to be other ways for people to hear about us. And I really doubt that we're going to be the kind of people who are so obtuse as to tell rich people to sit up front and poor people to sit in the back. We're Minnesotan about these things. We might do it a little more covert than that. And so I just want us to be, pay attention to that because that is something that can ruin the culture of your church so quickly. I hope that when we move into that facility, it only increases our capacity for, for healing and invitation and hospitality and, and breaking barriers, you know, as the gospel tells us, you know, breaking down the, the wall of hostility that still exists in our society. May we be aggressive at fighting against the sin of partiality by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I also think about your homes. You know, we, we come to this table here every Sunday. It moves around the neighborhood, but there is no one who is refused from coming to this table. And so I also ask the question about your homes. What about the table of your homes? Are there ways in which your family is perhaps exercising partiality in some sort of way? It's a good question that we can be wrestling with today. What are ways in which our table uh, can also be a place in our homes for people who are different from us in terms of riches, rank, race, those sorts of things? How can we be an impartial people? Well, the good news is that if you are a Christian, then your wrongdoings have been forgiven because God shows no partiality to you. When God looks upon you, he doesn't see your external appearances. He sees the righteousness of Christ that has been applied to you through faith. And if you aren't a Christian, there's no cost to this. 
God has that same invitation to you as well, to come and experience not the glory of this world, which is empty and fading and corrosive and falling apart and temporary and depleting and painful and betraying. No, he wants to give you the glory of himself, which is eternal and beautiful and just absolutely gorgeous and exciting to be a part of. That's what God is inviting you into. So brothers and sisters, may we be like our Lord Jesus Christ, who had mercy and shown love to all people, regardless of their riches, their rank, and their race. May we be quick to extend our table here and the table in our homes to all peoples. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the impartial one. You are the one who looks into our heart. You are the one whose love goes out to all of humanity. And you seek to gather us all under your fold. Lord, for those here who, who carry your banner, who have been sealed by you and your spirit, Lord, may you grow the gift of faith within us. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who does not yet know you, may they be drawn to you, Lord Jesus Christ, that they can experience your forgiveness and your freedom that can only be found in you. Lord, we love you, and it is in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.